when we gave people a low carbohydrate food prescription? Were we simply lowering their carbohydrate intake or were we increasing their fat intake? Were we increasing their protein intake? Were we um, making them have to pay more attention to what they were putting in their mouths and things like that? And so um, that was something that I always paid close attention to and asked um, patients about and um, actually took up in my research later on when I got my PhD. Um, I wrote my dissertation on the dietary guidelines for Americans um, because <laughs> I got a lot of feedback from, um, from patients that they didn't want another generation of people, women especially, because I think women were uh, impacted by the dietary guidelines in some ways differently than men were. Um, and they didn't want another generation of women to have this battle of the bodies that they felt that they'd had all their lives. So um, one of the things that I learned is that when you reduce the total carbohydrate in people's diets, although when we, we talk about it frequently as low carb, high fat, we, we usually are not increasing, at least not dramatically, the absolute amount of fat that people take in. Um, at least that's what the experimental sh studies show us. It may be different for individuals, but um, we are removing a lot of the foods that we think of as triggering in terms of food addiction or sugar addiction. So um, a low carbohydrate diet doesn't typically include a lot of processed foods. So that's another big change um, is that the, you go from maybe eating things like pasta or bread that are really quite highly processed to eating meat and eggs, which aren't. Um, there's still room for some processed foods. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm not one of these people who thinks that the word processed automatically makes a food evil because coffee is processed, cheese is processed, and I like both of those things very much. So um, it's not just processed. That's the problem. You no know, different people feel differently about this. Um, and it's not necessarily about increased fat at least not absolute amounts of increased fat in the diet that make low carb diets work. Um, so one of the things that I became very interesting, I was in, introduced to low carb through protein power. I, I hadn't actually even heard of Dr. Atkins until I started working for Eric Westman. So I didn't know what the Atkins diet was. Um, so when people would say that to me, I would scratch my head and I had to go look it up. Um, but I started with protein power, which was a low carb diet, but a low carb diet with a focus on making sure that you get adequate protein. And um, a lot of the things that people complain about at the beginning of low carb diets, um, you know, side effects and um, cravings, like I never got those. And I was always sort of curious about that. And I definitely remember having a few patients for whom a low carb diet didn't seem to work. They would come in and they would say, you know, I ate a giant breakfast, it was low carb, and by 10 o'clock in the morning, I was hungry. So what am I doing wrong? Well, I would ask them what they had for breakfast, and their version of a giant breakfast was, um, you know, two eggs and three slices of bacon, which 
if you're used to a low fat diet and having a little cup of yogurt, of not fat yogurt, yeah, that does seem like a huge breakfast. But in terms of calories um, and in terms of protein content, it's really not a lot of either of those things. Um, so I would counsel them to really increase the protein content of breakfast, especially. And, and that was influenced, that guidance was influenced by the work of um, Don Lehman, who showed that if our protein intake across the course of the day is typically very skewed with very low in, intake at breakfast, sort of medium intake at lunch, and high protein intake at dinner, as if our bodies are trying to catch up with protein over the course of the day, which as it turns out, it's very likely that they are. So I would counsel these patients to really focus on getting sufficient protein first thing in the morning. And that almost always resolved our problems. What was interesting is that it seemed to resolve a lot of what patients would self-identify as emotional eating problems. So I I remember this very clearly in um, in clinic, and it used to I used to just laugh about this because these women would come in and they'd say, "Well, no diet ever works for me because I'm an emotional eater." I'm like, "Okay, well let's let's see what we can work with here," and, and this is not to deny anyone's personal experiences with food and the fact that food does have a large emotional and mental component to it. There are such a thing as, as comfort foods, foods that make us feel better. And we do have attachments to food. Um, we learn early in our lives that um, food represents love in many family circumstances. And I, I don't want to minimize that at all because I think it's very important. But what I learned from my patients is that if I could get them to eat sufficient protein in the morning, they would come in like for their biweekly checkup and they would say things like, Adele, you'll never guess what happened to me. And I would say, yeah, let me guess. You worked through lunch. And they'd look at me. Oh, I, that's exactly what happened. I worked through lunch. That's never happened before. I'm always thinking about lunch at like 9am. And so they never, um, they never forget to go to lunch. But if you eat enough protein at breakfast, it, it often happens that you're literally not hungry for lunch, even when it's lunchtime. So that's what was happening with, with these women. And um, I, thought, I thought that was a really, really important lesson. And I've seen that um, uh, reinforced with research in a number of, uh, a number of different trials where feeding people a higher protein breakfast really changes their intake throughout the rest of the day, which I think is really important for people who feel like they have to engage a lot of willpower um, when they start a low-carb diet or um, are having trouble sort of managing appetite issues.
I would start by saying individuals are individuals. And this is, I mean, you can't be in nutrition very long. Um, one of the books that I've loved is Roger Williams' um, Biochemical Individuality, where he talks about, you know, all of the different enzymes and hormones that we have in our body. And we have overlooked this for so long in nutrition. Um, we've been so focused on the calories in, calories out paradigm that we forgot. I mean, even endocrinologists forget <laughs> that insulin um, does a lot in terms of appetite and that protein does a lot in terms of appetite and that hormones um, manage our intake to a large extent, not just how many calories we've had. So if we have some number of calories, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're done eating. Um, it, but I think that this also impacts um, hormone uh, production in your body, enzyme production in your body. And we all have different capacities for that. And our bodies have different capacities for making these needed enzymes and hormones from the food that we take in. So we, we may very well have quite individualized um, levels of need for things that for other people are easily made in sufficient quantities by the body. Um, and saturated fat may be one of those things. So we don't think of saturated fat as an essential nutrient because typically the body can make it. But um, that may not be true for everyone. We know that's not true for cholesterol. So some people need dietary cholesterol because their body doesn't make it in sufficient quantities. Um, and that may be true for a lot of other things. One of the major lessons of uh, Roger Williams' book, Biochemical Individuality, is that there are so many hormones and enzymes in our body, and they all exist um, along a spectrum of produce very little to none at all to produce it in overabundance. And if you think about any one of us being on a different point in that spectrum for these hundreds, if not thousands of different metabolites, then that makes each of us quite different from the other. Um, so I don't want to ever overgeneralize. Um, but when I found that it didn't work in clinic, typically the problem was an understanding of <laughs> how much food protein has. People think of bacon as a meat. It's not. It's a fat. Um, the calories that you get out of bacon are mostly fat calories. They're not protein calories. And protein and fat and sugar act very, very differently in the body in terms of what roles they can play. Um, although protein can be used for energy, it's typically not. We typically rely on either dietary carbohydrate or dietary fat for energy. Um, but protein can only play, uh, protein is the only macronutrient that can play certain structural roles. Um, so you can't build muscle out of carbohydrate or fat. Um, you can't build the collagen in your bones out of carbohydrate and fat. So you have to have protein to do those things. Um, a lot of our hor hormones are protein-based. Um, so protein is essential in a way that carbohydrates and fats are not. 
um, I think that's the main thing to remember. So when it doesn't work, it's typically an educational issue rather than a physiological issue. But I wouldn't discount the fact that some people need dietary fats or even dietary carbohydrates in a way that isn't recognized by more general rules of thumb about these things being non-essential. Yes. Yep. Yep. No, not at all. I mean, it, it just, okay, so you think about the things that we do in life that, um, like parenting is a good example. Is there a rule book for parenting where there's only one way that you can parent your children? We, we know that's not the case. So why would we take that to this other sort of complicated um, area of our lives that involves all these different, I mean, even when we talk about like what's in our food, just because there's a hundred grams of carbohydrate in a typical sweet potato doesn't mean that any particular sweet potato that you pick out to eat has that same nutrient profile as an average sweet potato. There is no such thing as an average sweet potato. Each sweet potato is its own sweet potato. Just like every parent is their own parent to every child that's their specific individual child. You can't make generalizations um, about things like that. I, I've, I think this applies to a lot of areas of our lives where we want rule books, but we sometimes just have to acknowledge our lack of information. And, and we have to remember that nutrition is really in its infancy in many regards. Now we have decent information about essential nutrition, but the way that nutrition is related to like emotion and mental health and things like that, um, chronic diseases, we, we have very, our, our knowledge about that is, it's just not very robust at this point. And, and so to, um, overgeneralize is as much of a mistake as it is to say that there are no rules. It's someplace in between and mileage varies a lot.
Uh, hi, Ali. Um, hi, Adele. I, uh, just a question that came to mind um, as you were just speaking. Um, I find this whole area um, really fascinating and I, I totally agree uh, with um, having your own rule book rather than um, a generalised rule book. But um, one thing I'm grappling at with at the moment myself, um, which I'd like to um, hear your views on, is how your own needs and your own rules might need to change over time if something you were previously doing and working stops working and stops working you know, for a long time. So it's not just the blip in the road. How would you advise going about... Um, working out the best way forward in terms of the macronutrients and times of eating and all of that kind of thing you know foods versus supplements that kind of thing it, it's something i think that it's can be really difficult um on a number of levels um, firstly just um getting your head around the fact that something that seemed like a miracle solution no longer is right uh, but then how to how to move forward on that be really interested to hear from you I think the first thing is being able to identify when something's not working for you and being able to accept and acknowledge um, that it isn't working. I was a vegetarian for, I don't know, uh, 15, 18 years. And over time, it worked less well for me. But it was really, really hard for me to let go of that. So I think that the first step is food becomes ideology very quickly in our minds, especially when it really does address an important health issue that we've been struggling with. Um, so when we change our diet and something seems to work for us really well, it becomes a, almost a belief system and not a rational system. That makes it harder to let go of principles that we thought were ironclad. Um, I've been seeing this on Diet Doctor recently and talking about um, making sure that you get sufficient protein. There's, but, 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 but fat is the magic ingredient. Well, <laughs> um, maybe it is for some people and it really might be. Um, but if you're not getting adequate protein over time, we know that it's going to undermine your health long-term. I mean, there's just no question about that. Now, what adequate is for various different people, that, that may, um, that may not be ironclad, but we do know that it is really, really critical to overall good health. So the first part is acknowledging that something that you're doing isn't quite working. And then you sort of want to pin down Am I getting weaker? Am I not losing weight? Am I just unhappy and bored with what I'm eating? So what is it that's not working? And diets can, quote unquote, not work on a lot of different levels. It may be working for you physically or physiologically, but not be working for you mentally and emotionally. Um, it may not have enough off days. You may feel too constricted. You may feel like your social life um, is being curtailed or limited by your diet. And that's not what we want overall. Um, it's not progress if you go from having an active and busy social life to having a diet, but having to stay at home because you can't eat out with your friends or enjoy a barbecue or a family get together. Um, that's not necessarily progress. You may feel better, you may lose weight, your 
blood sugar numbers might improve, but something about that situation needs to be tweaked so that you can live the happy full life that you're meant to live. It's it's not a trade-off that you should have to suffer through for indefinitely. So I think that those are the first things is realizing when something's not working and then identify what it is that's not working. Um, if it's something like um, you're just unhappy with your diet, maybe you need more days off. And it's okay to take a day off your program for most people, not for everyone. Somebody, Some people take a day off and it becomes a week off and then a month off and then a year off. Um, but other people bounce back really quickly. They take a day off or even just a meal off and, and then they can get right back on their program. Usually that's easier if your program is less restrictive to begin with and you feel like you have a fair amount of food choices and flexibility. Um, but you should certainly be able to go out to a family get together every now and then and enjoy Aunt Betty's, you know, special pie that she made for you. Um, if it's not going to throw you off for an extended period of time. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you, you sort of maybe have to take the risk and see what works for you and what doesn't. Um, sometimes it's a matter of finding better substitutions. I know that I would have patients and, um, you know, they miss some of the desserts that they would have um, when they were eating more of a high carb diet. And like we'd give them some substitutions and some of them would stick and they'd say, oh yeah, that was, that satisfied my craving for pasta. The zoodles made out of zucchini, they, they worked great. Other people will go, well, I tried the zoodles and then I just had to go out and get some pasta anyway. So that's really not helpful because you're eating then two meals when you don't really need to. Um, so better substitutions that actually um, feed the need that you're feeling isn't being met. Um, but if you notice things like you're not losing weight the way you want to, or you're losing muscle mass, which is not good. Um, in fact, we're beginning to find some evidence that your body is actually more concerned health-wise about conserving muscle mass than it is about whether or not you have excess adipose tissue. So maybe switching your priorities in your mind from, I want to lose fat, I want to lose fat, I want to be able to fit into this outfit I used to be able to wear, to I want to make sure I preserve my lean mass. I want to make sure I'm taking care of my muscles and my bones. So that may be the step that you need to take. But in terms of implementing any of this, the main rule would be only change one thing at a time because you can't figure out what the problem was if you change a whole bunch of things at once. And, and as I said at the very beginning, sometimes that can be hard. If you change one thing about your diet, other things have to change too. But just try and minimize that simply so you can track and keep records. And, and when I say track and keep records, not, not just about physical things. You want to track your emotional and mental response to a new approach as well. I think that's really important. Does that answer your question, Yvonne? Yeah, no, thanks. That's really helpful. Many things to think about and consider. And, and I particularly like the links between the emotional mental side and, and the physical side. So, yeah, no, thank you very much.
Well, I have to say that I'm so glad that you brought up preserving lean muscle mass. And, you know, I think prioritizing protein and eating kind of, you know, your first meal, eating more food is a great strategy for people. And I think that, you know, in this room, what we have is we have people that we feel we have food addiction, you know, and sometimes that's a process addiction. And we can become almost too restrictive. And so I really think that um, having some general guidelines like Ali was talking about is a really good idea. But I was wondering, but I also think people should eat as broad of a range of foods as they can so they can have an enjoyable, you know, time with food. That's really important to me because I have celiac, so I don't go to those barbecues, you know, and eat whatever because I can't even eat off of the same grill that buns have been grilled on or whatever. So, and I don't eat that stuff anyway, but I'll have, you know, I'm primarily carnivore because I feel best with five autoimmune diseases, but once in a while, I feel like I need the energy of a piece of fruit or, you know, a little bit of veg here and there. So I feel like, you know, I don't have a set, this is how I eat, you know, dogma about how I eat. And I wouldn't be happy emotionally if I thought I have to eat this way and only this way. That wouldn't work for me. So I wouldn't be able to live with that food plan. But I'm wondering if you have some guidelines about how much protein should have. And I know protein requirements go up as we age because we just don't absorb it as much. But what would you say a baseline protein? Because I know it's like, what, 60 grams on the the, uh, dietary guidelines. So I'm just wondering what you think about that and what you would like to see change with our dietary guidelines? Well, the first thing that I would like to see changed with our dietary guidelines um, in terms of just how we approach these things is this focus on percentage of calories, because we know that there are threshold effects. There are threshold effects for carbohydrate, and there are threshold effects for protein. And we ignore that when we talk in terms of percentage of calories. Um, it, it locks us into the calories in calories out mentality in a way that I think doesn't make any sense in terms of physiology. So when we talk about a low carb or a high carb diet, it's almost always talked about in public health terms as percentage of calories, but, um, 10% carbohydrate for one level of calories may be too much, um, depending on how many calories somebody's eating. For another person, it may be too low. Again, if they're eating a low amount of calories, it doesn't make sense. Same thing with protein, is we have to think in absolute amounts, especially since the evidence keeps coming in that there's actually a meal-based threshold for uh, muscle protein synthesis. And that's what we want to stimulate is muscle protein synthesis. What that indicates is once we've when we stimulate muscle protein synthesis, it means that we're meeting all of our other protein needs because your body is not going to start building muscle until it's used protein for the other things it needs to use it for. Um, so we're, we're beginning to recognize these thresholds. So I would say in a, in a per meal um, way of thinking about it, probably 25 to 35 grams of protein per meal is reasonable. 
And therefore, that means over the course of the day, um, aiming for somewhere between 75 grams to maybe 120 grams um, is going to be sufficient protein. But as I said at the beginning, you don't want to start with low protein at breakfast and then increase your protein at lunch and then have a giant um, protein meal at dinner. I mean, you can do that, but you're probably going to accumulate excess calories calories along the way um, as your body keeps telling you, okay, yeah, that was food, but it wasn't the kind of food I was looking for. And it's going to send you back out for more food. So I, I do think we want to balance our protein throughout the day and not just um, eat it all at an evening meal. Um, I, I think that's a, a reasonable way to look at it. So that just brings up one more question. The whole you know, OMAD trend where people are eating one meal a day, which, yep. you know, sometimes I do just because my hunger fluctuates. Sometimes I eat two meals a day. Sometimes I eat three meals a day, but you're not going to really be able to meet all your protein requirements in that one meal biologically. Right. right. However, over the course of a few days, you should be meeting them overall. So maybe if you have an OMAD day, you'll maybe only get 60 grams of protein at that one meal. But maybe the next day, whereas you might typically have 100 grams of protein, maybe that day you'll have 120. Um, your body can um, regulate how it uses protein over time pretty effectively. I mean, it, it, that tells us how important protein is to the body because it's really good at absorbing it almost completely when it needs to, and then reducing the level of absorption when it doesn't need um, as much protein. So there is, um, I, I think that one of the mistakes we make though is, and this happens all the time in nutrition, where when we swing the pendulum, we swing it way far in the other direction. So prioritizing protein and emphasizing the importance of protein doesn't mean that you have to eat 300 grams of protein a day. Um, I think actually the needs for the body are pretty narrow, like in terms of there being a bottom limit and a top limit past which you're having a fairly expensive macronutrient um, used for energy, which we just don't want to do. It doesn't make sense um, in any regard. So um, getting just sufficient amounts of protein is is fine. Um, it's not a case where more is absolutely better. Um, we, see, we see with the feeding studies that past around 35 grams of protein, muscle protein synthesis levels off. Um, so it's not that your body can't use that protein. So if you're doing OMAD and you eat 60 grams of protein at that meal, that, that protein isn't wasted or just not used body is going to probably just keep um, those amino acids in circulation and not necessarily use them for building muscle. They might save them short term for, you know, like if the next day you did another OMAD day, then they would have that little bit of reserve if they needed it. So while there's, um, you don't store amino acids the same way you store fat, um, there is a little bit of flexibility physically physiologically to take that into account. But I personally 
Um, I, you know, I do believe in like listening to your appetite, but over time you do have to get sufficient protein. We do know, we've, we've noticed with some recent studies with intermittent fasting that people do lose muscle mass um, if they're not getting adequate protein over time. So we do have to pay attention to that. Thank you. That was great. I agree. I agree. We just haven't discovered them to the extent that we've discovered protein leverage. Yep. Exactly. Well, first of all, I have to say, Adele, welcome to Clubhouse. I'm so excited to have you here. I couldn't believe you're here. Thank you for bringing her over, Ali, Anna, and Yvonne. And also wanted to thank you for your contribution to the clinical guidelines for carbohydrate restriction. Oh, thank you. I, I find myself giving that document out to a lot of people. So thank you so much. I, I, I hope you're here to stay. Um, I do have a question that has been part it has been somewhat answered already throughout all the other questions regarding fuel partitioning. What are your thoughts on that concept? And I'm looking at it from the context of a caloric restriction for people that are um, looking to lose weight and they restrict their calories heavily. Um, thoughts on that fuel partitioning? Thank you. So... Um... In terms of calorie restriction, I think the first thing that you acknowledge is that calories are different, right? Protein calories are not like carbohydrate or fat calories. Um, so, so you have to have your protein calories even if you're restricting calories. I mean, so this is why I think carnivore might be really, really useful for some people um, because it's a way of really focusing in on the most important calories that you need, which are... Uh, so as we know, there's no such thing, at least physiologically, it may be different mentally and emotionally, there's no such thing physiologically as an essential carbohydrate. But um, there are essential fatty acids, and there may be differing needs for different types of um, fats and sterols that we 
get from animal food. Um, but there's absolutely essential requirements for amino acids. So um, carnivore, you're focusing on the macronutrient that provides those things, and that's your primary it, uh, source of food intake. So you're definitely meeting those needs while keeping calories from the other sources of macronutrients that are non-essential quite low. Um, so I think that's important, but I also think that that threshold effect that I was talking about earlier with re regards to carbohydrate, and I don't know that there's a threshold effect for fat. I, I've not been made aware of one at this point, but we know that there's a threshold effect for carbohydrate in terms of what happens to the insulin glucagon balance. And um, um, some people are going to tip um, quicker than other people. So if someone is restricting calories, you, I would have them focus on protein first, making sure they get sufficient protein at those levels that we were talking about before, you know, 75 to 120 grams, whatever they feel most comfortable with, but making sure that they're meeting like per meal requirements as well. Um, and then um, depending on their preference, which do you want to use for fuel? Do you want to use carbohydrates for fuel or do you want to use fat for fuel? And I think that has a lot to do with food preferences. If you can't live without fruit, then maybe the fuel that you're going to prefer using is a carbohydrate fuel. Now, will that make it more difficult for you to lose weight? Possibly, depending on where that threshold is. But it's also possible that with caloric restriction, you can get that insulin low enough um, if you minimize carbs to, to allow for fat loss to happen. Um, I, I'm not convinced that carbohydrates have to be super, super low for your insulin to low, to go down, um, and normalize enough for fat loss to occur effectively. It may not be all about the carbs as those of us in the low carb community have, have sort of, um, argued for, for many years. Um, and with caloric restriction, you have to be careful with fat because fat does have twice as many. I mean, this is one of the things about that pendulum swinging is that we kind of went from fat is bad to fat can do no wrong. Well, fat packs a lot of calories in a little package. So you, if you are restricting calories, and, and we've seen this with keto, with people who are doing what they call a keto diet, where they're thinking about restricting their carbohydrates quite low not really focusing on protein very much, but making sure that their fat intake is quite high. Um, sometimes they stop losing weight after a while. And that's almost always, I think, because their metabolism has finally caught up with their caloric intake and those fat, that fat is adding a lot of calories to their, um, to their diet. And they're not thinking about it because they're of the mindset that fat can't make you fat, but it can. So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a quick follow-up question. So in your expertise, how long is it safe to be in a, in a when, I, when I say severe, because in my opinion, you know, less than a thousand calories is actually less than 1200 calories is a severe restriction for me. But I was having this debate with a, with a, someone else that he, he's putting people on an 800 calorie diet for weight loss, but because he's prioritizing protein, 
you know, he feels that it's safe for them to do this. I'm very skeptical of that because, you know, like you said, we want to protect our metabolism and muscle mass and all that, and all that good stuff. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, my biggest concern with, with that would be how restrictive that is for the patient in their life. I mean, typically when you're getting down to that level of calories, you're having people do shakes or formulated meals in some form or fashion, um, because otherwise it's really hard to manage that level of low calories um, and still get adequate protein and, and all the rest of that. So my first concern would be for the, the patient's happiness and sense of well-being and food enjoyment. I think Anna was saying that, um, and, and it was a very good point, is that, you know, if you're on a restrictive diet, then, you know, are you mentally happy with how that, you know, feels for your day as you go through your day. So that would be my first concern. I wouldn't, depending on how obese the person was and whether they're being supplemented with micronutrients and the rest of that stuff and how broad that spectrum of micronutrients is. I mean, there's a lot of things in food that we don't know that we don't know about. So, um, so that would be one of my concerns. Um, uh, as Ali was saying at the beginning, um, like you have these these carnivore folks who feel very much that they need um, fat from ruminants. And I wouldn't contradict that ever. Um, in fact, I had a really interesting case in the hospital when I was doing my dietetic internship. <laughs> this woman who was on a feeding tube she had an eating disorder. And so every now and then she would have to come in and get on the feeding tube for a little while and, and gain some weight back. But while she was on her feeding tube, she would eat these handicap hot French fries. Um, and she would eat them just by the bag, full, like three or four bags a day. And I looked at the ingredients um, on the bag and the nutrient profile. And I looked at what we were giving her through her feeding tube. And we were giving her very low sodium and zero saturated fat. And what were those handicap French fries full of? sodium and saturated fats. So it's like the mountain goats in the cave. Like she figured out to how to get a source of those nutrients um, that she wasn't getting in her feeding tube. And, you know, we would say, I think most nutritionists would say, but you don't need a source of dietary saturated fat. Well, maybe she did uh, because she would come to a point after she'd been in there a couple of weeks where she would just stop eating the handicap fries. <laughs> So that would be my other concern is I would be first concerned about their emotional happiness with that level of caloric restriction. And then I would be concerned about missing nutrients that they don't know that they're missing. So um, I do think that an ex the extended use of really calorie restricted diets is probably not a good idea, but not necessarily because of the low amount of calories um, as we see with people doing things like OMAD and intermittent fasting, um, you can do that for a, a long time and do quite well as long as you're getting sufficient amounts of protein and other essential nutrients. Does that help at all? Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Hi, thank you, Allie, Anna, and Dr. Adele for holding space. Um, so I had a question that I had heard this actually earlier this 
week or month. Um, and I was curious, you sort of touched base on it, but sometimes I have trouble like eating at night. Like I feel like I get a lot of urges to want to eat at night. And someone told me that it's good to maybe have like a healthy carb. Um, I follow a very strict low carb of eating, but they say that if sometimes you'll eat like a, maybe a carb loaded meal, like that might be a little bit higher in carbs at night might help you sleep at night. But I heard that it can also increase your hunger though in the morning or like trigger hunger. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, thank you. This is Jose and I'm done speaking. Um, Actually, Jose, that's a great question, and both of those things are true. Um, so it can help you sleep, um, and it can trigger hunger, but typically you'll sleep through that hunger. So um, if, you know, if it's further, if it's close enough to bedtime to help you sleep, but further enough from bedtime so that by the time you have the blood sugar swing, and it does help if that carbohydrate comes with some fat and or some fiber because that slows down the digestion and flattens that plat uh, that uh, curve just in general. So oatmeal, potatoes with the skin, um, popcorn has a lot of fiber. You could put butter on it. That's not a problem. Um, those kinds of foods can both help you sleep. And, um, you know, I think that this is one of those things where you play with it and you say, okay, I did this. Did it help me sleep? And did I have hunger in the morning? And, you know, maybe it's the food. Maybe it's the amount of food. Um, maybe it's the things you're eating with the food or not eating with the food. Um, because I mean, you don't ever want to eat carbohydrates straight up um, in most cases. And typically we don't because that's like cotton candy or soda, um, straight glucose into the system. Um, you want to cushion carbohydrate intake with fat or with fiber or with protein or all three. Um, and that will help flatten things out so that you're less likely to have cravings in the morning. And again, I would say that you want to make sure that you're doing this building on a foundation of adequate protein throughout the day so that your body's not looking in the evenings for, um, for its protein. I think, I think this happens pretty frequently. Um, we have a saying in the dietitian world that diets are not broken in the morning. Um, usually when we wake up in the morning, we're committed to whatever dietary pattern we're planning on following that day and we're good throughout the day. And it's in the evening when that, um, ice cream in the freezer is calling to us. But our brains go ice cream, but our bodies may be really saying, I want protein or I want calories. But because ice cream is tasty, that's what our brain decides we need. Um, so learning how to differentiate between those things is also important. Does that help at all, Jose? Yes, that helps a lot. Thank you so much, Dr. Adele. You're welcome. Thanks for the question.
Honestly, Allie, I feel like I could um, ask a million questions and there's there aren't enough hours in the day to pick your brain. So <laughs> I hope that she will come back because I, I love your nice, moderate approach and your individual. Um, you know, I really believe that people have to find a food plan that works for them. Uh, everybody has mitigating circumstances, how, you know, and I'm always saying, How's your energy? How's your mood? How's your sleep? That can tell you a lot about yep. your food. And I also wonder what you think about things like, you know, sunshine as a nutrient, getting that adequate vitamin D, those kinds of things. Can those, uh, can lack of, of certain essential nutrients, and we know a lot of people are low on D, um, can that trigger nutrient hunger and things like that? It's entirely possible. I mean, I think happiness is a nutrient. So, you know, are you doing what makes you happy? At least at some parts of our life, you know, we can't be happy all the time necessarily. But um, diets and health and fitness programs in general, it, it's a, um, you know, it's a circle. You'll feel more like eating healthy if your world is in order and you'll feel more like exercising if your world is otherwise in order. And then when we eat healthy and we exercise, we also feel like we're more capable of managing other stressors in our lives. So um, while it may be hard to get over that hump sometimes, um, this is a, you know, a mutual feedback system. So um, yeah, you know, happiness, sunshine, um, social contact, being with other people. We know that we read each other's biology and pheromones and, um, you know, oxytocin when we get a hug or when we come in physical contact with other people. Um, and, and sometimes, especially over these past crazy year and a half, um, those things haven't been happening. And then it is harder to eat well and to sleep well and to be active and to do those other things that we know are good for us. So, um, yeah, it's all part of a big puzzle and it all works hand in hand. So, and we don't know what other things drive appetite besides protein. And I'm pretty sure we're, we're sure about salt, that there's an appetitive drive for salt. Um, but but more than likely, there's repetitive drives for other things. And it's funny about vitamin D. I remember learning about vitamin D and how it's made from cholesterol and UV radiation. And I remember thinking, oh, the very things that they warn us to stay away from. <laughs> so um, I don't know to what extent public health mandates have um, sort of undermined uh, our health in that regard as well. Well, I'm grinning from ear to ear, and I'm definitely going to get my dose of happiness today. Good, good. Sorry, I thought I had... 
Uh, hi, um, thanks so much for tonight. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, really interesting to hear you talk, Adele. Um, just one question um, about breakfast. Um, if somebody has hardly ever, I've never liked breakfast, um, and I still am never hungry in the morning, um, but I have been encouraged to try and eat breakfast, but I, I, I'm one of these evening hungry people. I just wonder what your views are on forcing yourself to eat breakfast in terms of its impact on the evening. Well, you shouldn't ever force yourself to eat breakfast. And when I use the word breakfast, I mean it in its most literal sense, the breaking of the fast. So probably a better term would be whatever your first meal of the day is. If you don't feel like eating until 1 p.m., then that is your first meal of the day. That's your breakfast because that's when you're breaking your fast. And that's the meal that should have sufficient amounts of protein in it, at least 25 grams, if not more, especially if you're going to eat fewer meals. And it will still have a similar impact um, in terms of long-term hunger because your body, I mean, if you think about food as information, Okay, so we, we think about our five senses. And what do our five senses do? They give our body information about what's going on in the world. We use our eyes and we look out there over the horizon and we see big black clouds gathering. We don't go, oh, I think I'll go on a long walk and be far away from warmth and shelter. No, our brains tell us um, that this would be a good time to, you know, hunker down. And so our, our food also tells us something about the environment. When we eat protein, that tells our body, protein is available for you to consume when you need or want it. And um, your body can sort of relax and feel comfortable that it's going to be adequately fed <laughs> for the rest of the day. So this is what, when we talk about, um, you know, your body, uh, your metabolism slowing down, that's an effect of your body going, okay, well, there must not be a lot of food out there. So I'm going to conserve the calories that do come in by just slowing everything down and not doing anything I don't really need to do. So we know that non-exercise activity um, is reduced and, and just lots of things about our body slow down when we don't eat enough. So going back to Ada's question, that may be a, another concern is that we don't want that to happen to people on restrictive diets. Um, we don't want that slowing of metabolism. Thank you, Adele. That's really, really helpful.
Well, thank you. This was a, a delightful experience. I'd be happy to come back and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. And now I figured out another app to, um, to play with. So that's great. Feel free to pop in anytime, Adele, even okay. without an invitation. You can just join in and, and lend your expertise. Okay. Thank you very much for that invitation. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone.